0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Today in the show, I get to interview the Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan. Why? Of course, everyone's talking about it, the scandal that's surrounding the mismanagement of the ArriveCan app.
1: And in the end, there was um, no oversight, no governance, no goals, no objectives. And so, you know, the the big finding of, you know, the, the value of this really boils down to how do you manage to a budget when you actually don't have a budget?
0: More with the Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan, in just a couple of minutes. But we also have a fascinating look at some of the challenges when we talk about the EV revolution, the transition to renewable energy. I mean, this has been a one-sided debate. We've been acting as if it's just easy going all the way. Well, you want to hear Ernest Scheider today. He's a senior correspondent for Reuters, but the point is he's just written a new book. It's called The War Below. Lithium, copper, and the global battle to power our lifestyles. Bottom line, hey, it's not smooth sailing. There are many groups who oppose particular projects. We want the lithium. We want the copper and other critical minerals. But you know what? Some environmentalists are against it, worried about water supply issues. Uh, Some are worried about some of the unique flora that gets Absolutely decimated if we do major mining projects. And the list goes on. I think you're going to find it fascinating. We also have Ozzy with us, of course. I've got Victor. I've got Michael. I've got a goofy award. I've got a shocking stat. You're at the right place. But first, my question regarding the ArriveCam app debacle was Will anyone care a month from now? Well, maybe they'll have the RCMP report issue their findings if uh, any criminal activity took place. But given another month after that, will anyone care? I mean, this whole mess is receiving a lot of attention right now in light of the Auditor General Karen Hogan's calling the mismanagement the worst she's ever seen in her long career. I mean, the AG found, in quotes, a glaring disregard for basic management and contracting practices. I mean, the Canada Border Service Agency's documentation, financial records and control were so poor that we're unable to even determine the precise cost. Hmm. Documentation, financial records, and control were so poor that we were unable to determine the precise cost. Now, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, every Auditor General's report in the last 40 years. I'll get more into the specific mismanagement of ArriveCAN in a few moments with the Auditor General, but I want to emphasize a straightforward point. While ArriveCAN is an egregious example of mismanagement and waste of our money, it's not a new story. In 2021 audit of the $182 billion Investing in Canada plan, Auditor General Hogan found that billions of tax dollars were unaccounted for, stating in quotes, the absence of clear and complete reporting on the Investing in Canada plan makes it difficult for parliamentarians and Canadians to know whether progress is being made against the intended objectives. Well, that's similar to what she just said about Arrive Canada. God, I recall what former Auditor General Michael Ferguson said about the billion-dollar Phoenix pay system debacle, which he said showed, in quotes, an unfathomable incompetence. And I thought just as importantly, he said, what he consistently encountered was a culture in the federal bureaucracy that avoids responsibility. Hmm, avoids responsibility? How about this? Public Works Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, in committee testimony, refused to answer Who the heck hired GC Strategies? He was asked 32 separate times, never answered. On Wednesday, we had the Canada Border Service Agency President, Erin O'Gorman. She was in testimony in front of the Commons Committee. Well, she didn't answer when asked who within Canada Border Service Agency was responsible for collecting and storing those documents. You know, I've read every Auditor General's report since Denny DeSotel assumed the office in 1991. So, 10 years later, When he was leaving the office, he stated in his final report to Parliament, when he was examining government mismanagement of tax dollars, he stated in quotes, Why do these problems seem so intractable? Why do they persist year after year despite express commitments to set them right? Eighteen years later, in his final report, Auditor General Michael Ferguson said the same thing. Our audits come across these, problem, these same problems in different government organizations time and time again. Even more concerning is that when we come back to audit the same area again, we often find that the program results have not improved. Yeah, maybe ARRIVE CAN is the worst example, given the apparent efforts to hide information, accusations right now of destroyed documents and emails, along with accusations of outright ro- lying along with the Liberal government's refusal to cooperate and the lack of interest, actually, in finding out what happened, right down to voting against initiating the audit we're going to talk with, uh, with Karen Hogan. But the point is that I could literally start naming egregious examples of mismanagement and waste and not finish for hours. Make that days. I'm not talking about policy choices. Well, that's part of the public debate, on, on, and you vote for that. I'm talking about waste, mismanagement, blowing tax dollars, implementing those policy choices. So let me finish with an unpopular observation. I'm unpopular enough, let me add to it. Politicians, most in the media, and the public couldn't care less. Think about the last two federal elections, two nineteen, two twenty one. 221. Government waste, mismanagement, lots of examples, or the failure to employ best practices wasn't an issue. There was not a single question during the leaders' debate. No reference to the Auditor General or Parliamentary Budget Office reports, despite the fact there is plenty of ammunition there. When surveyed about top concerns, government waste and mismanagement aren't in the public's top ten. So it's a good bet it's going to continue, at least until it costs government a lot of votes. But if the response to let's go back a few years to the Sponsorgate scandal is any indication, I'm not going to hold my breath. In case you don't recall, after Auditor General Sheila Fraser's audit found actual, you know, bad activity, but criminal activity, too, including, you know, suitcases full of money within that sponsorship program, which was intended, by the way, for government advertising in Quebec. My point is this. In the next federal election, That scandal, Sponsorgate, didn't cost the Liberals a single seat outside of Quebec. So my point, until voters say, hey, we've had enough of this, and we want to prioritize a much higher standard of management of our tax dollars, even at the expense of partisan preferences. Well, the countdown to the next scandal has already begun. Let me just do a quick word about the polar plunge. We're only two weeks away for Aussie me, former BC Premier Gordon Campbell, Border Gold's Robert Levy, Money Talks technical producer Dustin Noble. We're going to hit the icy waters of English Bay. Hey, I got to say this, though. I love the Outlook Conference this year. But my only disappointment was literally no one signed up to plunge with the Money Talks team. No one. I was kind of surprised, despite all of my moaning, and it's sincere, I hate cold water, and it was fun last year, though. I thought some other people would join in. And this year, I'm trying to arrange a Polar Plunge banquet of donuts, coffee, and hot chocolate. So here's your chance. If you want to join us, just email us at grant at moneytalks.ca. Put Polar Plunge in the subject. Grant at moneytalks, mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. And by the way, uh, thanks uh, right now to many people who have already donated. And it's, it's easy to do. All you have to do is go to my, Money Talks Plunge, MoneyTalksPlunge.com, MoneyTalksPlunge.com. I hope you do it. I'm not looking forward to it whatsoever. I'm looking forward to raising money for all of the athletes and the parents of people with intellectual disabilities who participate with us at Special Olympics. And it's easy to do as I say, hey, it's tax deductible too. Anything over $20, you get an email right back with the tax receipts. MoneyTalksPlunge.com. Just go there. Hey, but if you want to jump with us, you want to get in the water, I'm telling you, it actually was fun having other people with us last year. Just email Grant at Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca. Stay with us. Karen Hogan next. On the 2nd of November 2022, the House of Commons passed a motion that called for the Office of the Auditor General of Canada to conduct a performance audit of the government's management of the ArriveCAN can application. 149 Liberal members of Parliament voted against the audit. Conservative Bloc and NDP voted in favour, hence it has taken place. The Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan, and her office conducted the audit with the results released this week. The Auditor General joins me now. First of all, uh, Karen, thank you so much for finding time. Um, I just thought maybe we would start with this. Uh, Just bring everybody up to speed. What does the Office of the Auditor General do?
1: Uh, so we we do a lot of things, but they're all linked around auditing the public service, the federal public service. So we would do financial audits, um, most importantly of the government of Canada, but we would also audit crown corporations. Um, and so that's how the audit the audit the office, excuse me, was created for that it was actually to audit the accounts of Canada. Um, but we are very much known for our performance audit work, which is where we go into departments and agencies, and determine whether they have carried out. Um, programs or service delivery with due regard to what I'll say is the four E's, economy, efficiency, effectiveness, and the environment. Um, So we might not always cover those, but we always try to make sure that we look at value for money. So was taxpayer money spent in a prudent way. So the most important thing to know about our work is that we report to Parliament. Um, so we, I am an independent agent of parliament, which means I'm accountable to both the House and the Senate. Um, and our work is then used by parliamentarians to hold the federal government to account for how they've delivered on policy and how they've spent public funds.
0: Well, in that regard, obviously, the ArriveCan app. And the application has really grabbed people's attention. I think it was originally budgeted, as I said, at $80,000. It only came in 750 times more than that as a, uh, as a starting point. But you sum this whole thing up by saying it's the worst bookkeeping I think you'd ever seen. Uh, uh, let me just elaborate on what jumps out at you for that. I mean, you've been doing this a long time. Uh, you entered the Auditor General's office after a career in, in auditing and accounting in 2006. That's 18 years ago, so that's quite a statement.
1: Um, and, and I mean, that statement really takes me back to the fact that I've been an auditor for, for almost three decades now, and mm-hmm. not just my time here at the Auditor General's office. Um, in, in, it is because what I would call some of the most basic elements of good financial management controls and good record keeping, uh, were, were absent in so many cases. At times we saw some, that some invoices that were really well, um, documented contracts, well managed and well entered into the financial records. But for the most part, that's not what we found. We found some basic elements like uh, what skills uh it workers should have in order to work on a contract just not listed out and then invoices were missing basic elements such that we couldn't determine whether um, the, the the fees that had been charged related to the arrivecan application or another IT project that was on the way um at the canada border services agency and and that basic uh, information should be there
0: uh, let's start with what you estimate the cost of this was. As I say, originally budgeted eighty thousand came in. You know, I, I can't even do the math anymore. But okay, so as a taxpayer, how much did this overall thing cost?
1: So we estimated that the ArriveCAN application cost fifty nine and a half million dollars, and and it is an estimate, uh, and because of the really poor financial records that we had. It could be less, it, it could be a little more. And I guess what I would caution is comparing it to the 80,000, um, that mm-hmm. was really to digitize a form, right? To take something that was in paper format and, and automate it and make it electric, uh, electronic. It didn't consider a lot of the other factors like security that needed to be around that form, ex- how, how individuals might ex- access it across three different operating systems. Um, the bilingualism, the need to link with provinces, all of that, which is complex, which, which means that it will cost more um, than than what we've been hearing, isn't an excuse, however, to throw out all the rules and uh, and not make sure that you're spending money in a prudent and wise way and and we just didn't see that happening here.
0: I'm wondering about the cooperation because I I mentioned right at the outset, you know, all the Liberal members voted against having this audit, but it was more than that. We've heard reports of emails being uh, deleted, reports of reprisals against uh, whistleblowers. I mean, I remember the case where two federal managers were suspended without pay for suggesting that the Canada Border Service Agency executives lied when they were giving testimony. Uh, We got Public Works Minister uh, Jean-Yves Duclos uh, declining to answer, I think it was 32 times that who hired this company, uh, GC Strategies. Uh, just Wednesday uh, this week, we had uh, the Canada Border Service, uh, Services Agency President Erin O'Gorman testify in front of the committee, but didn't answer when she was asked who within the Canada Border Service Agency was responsible for collecting and storing these documents i mean i'm just wondering that can't be an easy audit to me it's not like everybody was saying come on in and i'll help you
1: um so we we actually got really good cooperation from uh, the three departments that were in this audit which was the canada border services agency the public health agency of canada and public service and procurement canada Um, i think the hard part here is that so much of what would normally be found in official corporate records and documentation was missing. It was really thin in some instances. So that basic question of who decided to award a contract to uh, the the first vendor uh, back in March of 2020 um, GC Strategies is is not well documented or the why awarding it to them. It was a non-competitive contract and and while that's allowed in the public service, it comes with a lot of uh, Uh, documentation that needs to prove that you've assessed that they have the skills and competencies to deliver, but that you've also considered other proposals, right, that you try to at least make sure that you're getting good value for the services um, that, that you're procuring. And all of that that would normally be available was just not there.
0: And as you say, normally, I think all of us do it in our uh, private lives. When there's a significant amount of money on the line, we shop and compare, (laughs) you know, we ask, what are we going to get for this stuff? So, uh, you know, it's, that's what I think is a bit of a head shaker. And now we find out by the way, and it wasn't part of your audit and it may be forthcoming, who knows, but that that company received, you know, something like a quarter billion dollars worth of contracts, uh, with uh, with about 46 of them not put out to tender. And I want to talk more about that when things aren't put out to tender so you don't get that comparative value op- uh, assessment there. Uh, how normal is that?
1: So normally... Uh, a- processes to procure goods and services in the federal public service are competitive. And, and competition is great to ensure that you have many vendors bidding for the same thing that will hopefully bring keep the price down and result in better value mm-hmm. for taxpayer money spent. But at times, there is the need to either act quickly or for other reasons to not use a competitive process. But even then, you typically um, go out and at least solicit informal quick bids from a few vendors. You still try to make sure that you drive a little bit of competition. And and that happened here where three vendors were approached by the Canada Border Services Agency. Um, Only one proposal, however, was received. That proposal was not from GC Strategies, and yet the non-competitive contract was awarded to GC Strategies. So again, you know, I actually think it's a bit of a head-scratcher as to why this wasn't all well-documented when um, it traditionally should be.
0: Uh, the other thing, and, and please uh, obviously correct me if I uh, misread this, but looking at the report, it seemed also at times that some of the criteria for selection were so unique that I had, they had to come up. It would be sort of like in this case with us, uh, the interviewer must have gray hair and a red tie and a slightly blue shirt with a messy painting behind him, you know? So it was only going to end up in one place. And, and uh, did I read that correctly? It just seems some, sometimes the terms are so narrow that we pretty much knew who was getting that contract.
1: Yeah, so if we take ourselves back to uh, the start of the pandemic, when all of this was happening and the need to develop the application was there to improve um, the, the monitoring of health measures at the border, uh, it was a reasonable ex expectation to do a non-competitive contract and to reach out to a third party to help because both the Canada Border Services Agency and the Public Health Agency of Canada um, had assessed that they didn't have the skills and more importantly, the capacity at that time to do this. Um, So it was good to see that after uh, a non-competitive contract, Canada Border Services Agency was moving to a competitive contract. Um, Mm -hmm. But what we found here is that the agency allowed the vendor to be involved in setting some of the selection criteria. And it was very narrow and restrictive that it likely limited competition. And in the end, GC Strategies was the only uh, vendor to respond to the competitive bid and hence were then given the competitive contract um, later on. And that kind of involvement from a third party in setting selection criteria should just not happen. And that's why we issued a recommendation to the Canada Border Services Agency to ensure that that does not happen going forward.
0: Well, obviously, as you just mentioned, the pandemic was a difficult time and, you know, the public service was, at, you know, they, they got to act right away. Or that was their instructions. But does that excuse the fact that you, as you said earlier, and we're talking some basic or fundamental policies that have been there, you know, established for ages about, you know, rules or controls in, in awarding contracts or managing the project, that kind of stuff. That, I mean, does that excuse that? We're talking really the basics.
1: So, again, uh, I feel like I'm doing this a lot. I'm taking us back to a time that most of us probably don't want to remember, which was the start of the pandemic, where things were, I mean, so uncertain, and there was just so much going on, and it was constantly evolving. And at that period of time, the Secretary of the Treasury Board um, provided uh, a letter to the public service saying, in order to support... Canadians. We need the Federal Public Service to be quick and agile and responsive. And so they were given permission to relax some of the rules or to avoid some of the the hoops that normally they would jump Uh through. But it was very clear that the public service needed to still be able to document its critical decisions and demonstrate um, due diligence and more importantly, accountability to Canadians for money that was spent. Um, So in my view, the fact that these basic things were missed here um, is, you know, the pandemic can't be used as an excuse. An emergency isn't a reason, as I said before, to throw all the rules out the window. It's a reason to just make sure that along the way you document Bits and pieces here and there, um, because you you might get overwhelmed and it might be just too much as things move along, um, and and just that documentation or demonstration uh, of uh, good accountability and transparency didn't happen here.
0: Do you, do you look at okay? So trying to assess what money was spent, how it was spent. Do you do the benefit side, like the cost? Yes. And the benefit side, was there any way of measuring what did we get for this? Because, uh, you know, the the app was widely panned, and uh, it doesn't look like it was overused. Let's, let's put it that way. But do you look at that side of the equation also? Or does your office look at that side?
1: So uh, we didn't do what I guess most people in the investment world would look at, which is a return on investment assessment. But we did look to whether or not um, Canadians received the value for taxpayers' funds. And our conclusion there was that no, Canada did not receive uh, the best value for for money spent. In fact, I would tell you that uh, the federal government paid too much for this application. But I would highlight I guess two 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 value aspects that we did look at. At uh, the early on in the pandemic, uh, you might recall that we should a report in 2021 around border measures. We actually had two. And in the second one, yep. uh, we followed up on how the government had improved um, following up with travelers. And some of that was because of ARRIVE CAN. The fact that now they could collect um, more accurate, the quality of the information was better, and more timely information to allow for better follow-up. So, for for example, to make sure that an individual had actually been quarantining over 14 days, the paper form was taking at times 28 days to make its way to the public health agency. So hard to follow up on a 14-day quarantine. Um, then I would tell you that there's an enduring sort of value to, to the application and that the Canada Border Services Agency uh, is now use this and springboarded to digitize the advanced declaration form for customs and immigration. So something you might have traditionally filled out sitting on a plane when you travel back into Canada is now digital and and it could expedite um, getting through customs. Um, All of that being said, it doesn't mean that you should pay more than you should for uh, an application. and, And in my view, we paid too much for this.
0: Yeah. And that's always the challenge is, is uh, I'm, I'm big on the cost benefit analysis of, of everything. I, I welcome it. But, uh, you know, you started off by saying you're there and I, I perceive that your office is the taxpayer's best friend. Uh, you know, did I get value? I'm not debating whether they should have done it. It's a policy decision. But given they're doing it. Am I getting value for that? And we heard, and it wasn't your office, but we heard from uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office that they, they'd done no cost benefit analysis, for example, on any of basically any of the environmental policies they put forward. Like, what did we get for it? So I think that's, you know, I'm still there. An important piece of that puzzle needs to be determined by the public, too. I mean, I'd say this, the public's got a role to play here. I mean, they can't just go to sleep on all of this stuff. And uh, if they want more value for money, they've got to demand it. It's not for your office or the PBO to, to do that. But let me let me come to one more a- aspect that I found a bit troublesome that I, I, I wouldn't have guessed at without reading your work. And that is, it looks like you know some employees of the Canada Border Services uh, didn't tell their supervisors, at least, or comply with the agency's code of conduct. I mean kind of they gone out for dinner and do sort of those corporate smoozing events you know and activities with the contractors
1: so I recognize that developing relationships with um, with vendors is something that's very commonplace um, in, in the normal work environment and in the federal public service where you have to make sure that not only do you you have, um, you are you are free of conflict of interest, but you also have the appearance of being free of conflict of interest, um, is why the public service has a really strict code of conduct. And in this case, the, the Canada Border Services Agency has a code of conduct that required if any employee received an invitation to a private event, whether they attended the event or not, they should be informing their supervisor. And And that's done for a few reasons. One is so that the supervisor can decide whether mitigation measures should be put in place um, since this, this happened. Uh, but most importantly, it's to uh, minimize that appearance of a conflict of interest or the view that there could have been bias made in uh, some of the procurement decisions that occurred. And we saw no evidence of that reporting by employees to their supervisors. So that really creates a significant risk um, when you're sitting back and looking at whether or not these procurement decisions were were properly done. Um, and, you know, mo- many of our recommendations, I would call them really common sense, in this audit report um, Mm -hmm. because some of the most basic common things you wanted to see uh, weren't there. And, And I would expect that they should be implemented pretty quickly.
0: Uh, let me finish with this, because this is really troubling for me. This is a, a, a work that you've done on a particular project, the ArriveCan Can app. One of the things you told me uh, in the past, told our audience in the past, is anytime you get a couple of departments together, responsibility and accountability sort of gets more difficult, you know, within that framework. But, man, can I, I, I just can't believe the theme of, at times, mismanagement, etc. cetera, uh, has been echoed from Denny de Sotel and of course, uh, Sheila Fraser, you know, the late Michael Ferguson, you know, who looked at uh, at the Phoenix pay system and said it was incomprehensible how poorly it was managed. And and now we arrive here. Uh, I think it's discouraging. For me as a taxpayer, it undermines my confidence in the system or, you know, in government as a system and expenditures. And I, I just, as I say, I find it depressing. I could have read this kind of a report. 20, 20 years ago thirty years ago forty years ago out of the auditor general
1: i mm-hmm. I have to admit that for for me it's uh it is a huge head scratcher to see the the absolute glaring disregard for some of the most basic uh, practices, principles, and policies that we would normally see the public service public service follow. And it's just not about record keeping. It was, as you say, about project management and good oversight. And and there was confusion here too at the start of the pandemic between the Canada Border Services Agency and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, neither agreed on what their roles would be. They both felt the other would um, set up uh, good governance structures. and And in the end, there was um, no oversight, no governance, no goals, no objectives. And so, you know, the, the big finding of, you know, the, the value of this really boils down to how do you manage to a budget when you actually don't have a budget? Um, and And, you know, I know the public service can do better. We've looked at other contracts throughout the pandemic. And while we have opportunities for improvement, they did do better. They were able to still demonstrate Um, prudent use of public funds and and, and the due diligence they exercise. But here it was just um, an accountability void and that really shouldn't have happened.
0: Well, I mean, I'm thankful for your office and the work you do. And I always encourage people to go read the reports of the Auditor General's office because it's our money. And I'm that basic. Speaking of basic, I'm that basic. You know, my personal biggest expenditure is taxation. You know, it's it's over my house. It's over my food. It's over, you know, all sorts of things. So getting value for money as your office focuses on is is an absolute key. So I'm going to start by just saying or finish by saying thank you. Thank you to all your people and all the work you do and know that it is resonating, at least with some of us who care how our tax dollars go. I wish it would resonate higher up on the uh, on the political chain, because I've been shocked that this is never an issue. You know, we had the 2000, and I'll just put this out, it's just me saying it, but, you know, both 2019, 2021 federal elections, they did the big leaders debate, not a single question about how our money was managed. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter who was in power, not a single question about, and this is despite some audits that were pretty, you know, eye-opening and shocking in some regards. Still not a question. So we we'll remain to be seen what the public does to it, but I know what you guys have done is first-class work. So thank you.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. And I think that that's one of the good things about um, the Federal Public Service in Canada is that uh, transparency and accountability, even when things are done wrong, are, are taken seriously. And, and that's a role that we get to play is to try and support that ac- accountability and transparency. And, and I do hope that folks go read our audit reports. We're trying really hard at making them um, shorter, easier to digest with some visuals, and and, and hopefully, um, uh, you know, folks will think it's a good read.
0: Yeah, and, and seriously, uh, the summaries, the summarization, the points to focus on are all there. So easy, easy stuff. Thanks so much for finding time for us. No, it's much appreciated.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Time now for the quote of the week. We'll actually make that quotes of the week. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know the dominant theme here on Money Talks that will impact our finances, impact every aspect, actually, of society with much more to come, is declining confidence in government and the establishment. Now, I I get, for some people, it's tough to get over the petty politics of the day, which dominates, but I'm looking at the bigger picture. And I'm looking at confidence in the U.S. government, specifically, I think further indications of problems are illustrated by the two presumptive candidates for the presidency of the U.S., 81-year-old Joe Biden and about-to-be-78-year-old former President Donald Trump. Now, look, I'm not going to debate the merits or the comparative merits of the two candidates. Instead, I'm asking a straightforward question. What does it say about America and American politics and its two major parties that For the Democrats and Republicans are effectively telling us that these are the best candidates each party has to offer. And if they wouldn't dare make that claim, I don't think they would. Well, what does that say about the question? You're prepared to put up somebody is isn't your best. For me, it offers compelling reason for further evidence of a decline in confidence in government and the establishment. The question is, where does it end? Well, my bet is it's big time over the next six to eight years, we're looking at a new system, all sorts of things that come. We've got a sovereign debt entitlement crisis, uh, rapidly rising prices due to declining purchasing power of the dollar, geopolitical conflict, et cetera, et cetera. There's more. But now to the quotes of the week. Now, first, this is directly from the Department of Justice report on whether President Biden should be prosecuted for keeping classified documents in his home. Specifically, the quote deals with the president's mental acuity, or lack of, as the report concludes. In quotes, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. He did not remember even within several years when his son Beau died and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eckenberry, when in fact Eckenberry was an ally with whom Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Biden. End of quote. It goes on. This is a topic of discussion in the U.S. Now to the second quote, this by Donald Trump, and there's many to choose from, but this week regarding whether the U.S. would support NATO allies who had not met their financial commitments to NATO, their military commitment. At a rally in South Carolina, Mr. Trump recalled a conversation with an unnamed head of state about how he'd respond if a NATO member that hadn't spent enough on defense was attacked by Russia. Mr. Trump stated in quotes, One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, Well, sir, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? Mr. Trump responded, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they wanted. End of quote. Well, I don't care if that was three actrics or he actually thinks the U.S. should abandon NATO allies. Uh, I mean, it's just an incredible statement to me during the Ukraine war, where Russia's bombed Ukrainian cities, civilians, hinted at using nuclear weapons, while threatening Finland and Sweden for wanting to join NATO. I mean, it's more than over the top. It's irresponsible. And I think it reflects a dangerous lack of judgment. But there you have it, folks, the two presumptive choices for president of the U.S. You know, one of the themes on Money Talks has been the lack of practicality when we're looking at, you know, the electric vehicle revolution or the renewable energy transition that I just simply said, where's the money? Where's the materials coming from? We've rarely talked about that. And another side of that subject, I mean, I, I've virtually never heard it is what are the trade offs we're making when we go that? I mean, just simply the mining impact on the environment, things of that sort. Well, finally, somebody's addressed that. Ernest uh, Scheider is senior correspondent for Reuters. He focuses on the energy transition, but he's written a brand new book just released. You can get it on Amazon, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Uh, Ernest, thanks so much for finding time for us. Hey, it's great to be with you, Mike. What, What a welcome subject in my eyes is, again... You know, I'm not debating whether we have electric vehicles renewal, but we need a full discussion of it. And this, the side you're talking about and done a great job with the book, The War Below, is hey, there are trade offs in this kind of thing. Uh, had you noticed that same dearth of information or side of that debate too?
2: I had. And I got to tell you just a little bit of context, Mike. So before I wrote about the critical mineral space for Reuters, I wrote about oil and gas. I did that for Mm -hmm. about four or five years. And I spent time living in North Dakota uh, and writing about the fracking boom and, and the industry going on there. And a lot of people would ask me, fracking good or bad? And I think folks tend to go on one side or the other with the oil or gas industry, depending on where your perspectives are. When I transitioned my coverage to go to the critical mineral space, one of the things that I noticed, though was that people across all different shape, uh, all different perspectives were saying, yes, yeah, we, we do need more of these critical minerals. We think, sure, we want electric vehicles and why not? We need more electric gadgets and gizmos. But they weren't really deciding or debating about where we want to get those. And so even though there's a, a wide realization that we need more of these, we're not having the debate about where, how, and why we actually want to produce them. And really what I'm bringing to the audience here with the book is the idea of choice. What are the choices that we're willing to make if we want this energy transition and if we want all these electric gadgets and gizmos that are increasingly powered by critical minerals?
0: And it seems so just recently, uh, at least my impression is that we just discovered they come from China, if you're looking at rare earths and the refining side, not just the mining, the refining side. Yes. And of course, China's a challenge, at least it is for me, with slave labor and those kind of issues. Obviously, environmental deg- degradation is an issue, you know, and the geopolitical tension. But we didn't even admit that, for goodness sakes.
2: Right. I mean, that is... One of the key tension points that I push into here in the book is how the past 30 or 40 years, China has really cornered the market for the production supply chain for these critical minerals. And so whether it's it's a gargantuan use of copper and the big contracts that it has with Chile and other large copper producing countries, or how it's cornered the market for the 17 minor metals known as rare earths that are extremely important for weapons uh, and other electronics, um, or whether how it's really focused to laser around control of the global lithium refining market and lithium underpins lithium ion batteries, which are extremely important. And so this geopolitical tension there really is the undercurrent that goes through the entire book, because these can be used as economic weapons. And indeed, we saw China do that in 2010 when it blocked exports of rare earths. It has also blocked recently exports of rare earth technology to the United States and other countries. And it has, and it has, excuse me move to block exports of other minor metals as well. And so these are economic weapons that are being used. And whoever controls these critical mineral production and processing will control the 21st century economy the way that oil helped to define control of the 20th century economy. And we're not having that discussion, but it's a reality.
0: Well, The War Below does a great job of of sort of pointing out that and then the implications. I mean, one of the things that I've been on about, because I just find it appalling, as simple as that, is the use of child labor, you know, in the mining uh, in the Congo for cobalt, as an example. Uh, Again, very little recognition or uh, admission of that that's the case, too, which is, I mean, part of this, or the major part of the impetus is the things you discuss in the book for bringing some of that production back into the US, but back into Canada and other sort of, let's call them Western jurisdictions. But again, that's why I think the book is just so timely, because that is certainly not without
2: challenges. Correct. Uh, One of the key examples that I talk about in the book is the proposed Twin Metals Project, which is in northern Minnesota uh, near the Canadian border. And this, your listening audience uh, might be familiar with the Boundary Waters, which as the name implies, is a giant body of water that forms the boundary between the United States and Canada, and this particular project that I explore in one of the chapters wants to be developed by a company known as Twin Metals, and it's an underground deposit of copper and cobalt and nickel. And if it were uh, being a, if it got greenlit by U.S. officials, it would be a huge supply for the entire region for these critical minerals and metals. But the tension point comes in the type of rock that these metals are found in. So if you extract it out and it gets exposed to water, it can, in some instances, form acid. And obviously, nobody wants acid to get into the boundary waters or the Great Lakes. They obviously form a huge part of the North American waterway infrastructure. And they're the beating heart, really, I would argue, of the economic engine for that entire region of the continent. Now, I should say that the company that wants to produce these metals says it can do so cleanly and safely, but a lot of conservationists and other outdoor recreational enthusiasts in the region are saying that that's a huge concern. Like, how would you clean it up if there were an accident? And and so right now the project is on, is on hold, is on ice. But supporters of the project point out, Mike, to your point, the huge use in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, what's called artisanal mining. And these are people that might break onto mine sites late at night or just even dig under their house to try to find cobalt. And sometimes you can have children as young as six or seven that might be part of this supply chain just to earn some some money to help put food on the table. But sometimes these kids can be maimed. They can even be killed, unfortunately. And it's really hard to trace once they sell that rock to a middleman that sells it to a refiner that goes into the global supply chain. It's really hard to trace if that cobalt Originated with a small child putting pickaxe and shovel into the ground. And so I'm not necessarily saying it's this sort of black or white argument, like if we don't dig in northern Minnesota, then that's going to boost mining in the DRC. But what I am saying is we're not having that discussion point right now around that tension, around what are the choices we're willing to make. And maybe the answer is we just don't mine here and we're comfortable having fewer electronics. But the way that our economic situation is growing right now. It does not seem that that is a choice we're having. So I really hope that the War Below sparks a conversation in Canada and the United States and elsewhere for where we hope to get the building blocks for our everyday lives.
0: Yeah, I would say it sparks a realistic conversation because that's what I think has been lacking. Uh, You know, it's interesting with the example you gave there because obviously people don't want to pollute in any way, their water supply, let alone the Great Lakes, you know, that feeds North America. But It would seem to me there won't be a solution here simply because, you know, people who are many of the people who are concerned about that. It's sort of the precautionary principle. You know, if there's even a one uh, percent chance of a problem, they say no to the project. I mean, it's you know, they would just be dug in. At least that's my experience with many of other similar
2: situations. It's zero
0: tolerance. And well, I don't think you get agreements with
2: zero tolerance. Well, that certainly is what industry would say to a lot of these issues. It's like you can't, I mean, there's no such thing as pure certainty yeah. in life, you know, obviously. Um, and and so that's, this is a rejoinder that you get from industry. And I think policymakers are caught in the middle here, you know, trying to wade through the complexities of these issues. Uh, what I think is going to have to happen, though, is for the average consumer, for the average voter in a lot of these Western nations to actually join the debate, to not just leave it for Ottawa or Washington to figure out, or for the manufacturers of the equipment that they use every day, whether it's cell phones or vehicles, but to actually be part of the conversation. We've seen glimmers of this, Mike, in the apparel industry. Remember that a few years ago, there were several large fires, unfortunately, at what were essentially sweatshops in Bangladesh. And these were horrible conditions where workers were, you know, well underpaid uh, and they, some of them ended up dying in these fires, but they were making clothing for very well-known brands sold across the world. And so you started to see consumers really push back for obvious reasons as to this horrible way that these clothes were being produced. I'm curious to see what the book and other talking points around these issues does for critical minerals, because I think we need to be having a broader conversation about where we get these building blocks and consumers need to lead it. The average people need to leave it because once they do that, then that will have a bottom up effect on the entire supply chain, as well as from the policy front. Right now in the United States, I mean, there's a hodgepodge of federal laws, but the main law that's governed hard rock mining in the United States has been around since 1872. That's a I really, know. really long time. <laughs> so. It probably should be updated. Well, but I love that
0: you're putting the emphasis also on consumers because we're getting an example now that might be somewhat helpful. I mean, uh, Apple has been so uh, highly criticized and I think justifiably so about not caring really what their supply chain looks like, especially when you've got Xinjiang province in, in China, you know, with slave labor, you know, talk about some of their suppliers use forced labor, you know, and so you're watching, you know, transition out of China to some degree anyways, or small degree. I'm watching other other uh you know uh, cell phone makers sort of boast that they're not there so maybe you know your point i just don't want to lose it here is that you know consumers can have an impact saying no that's not good enough here you got to do something different here
2: correct i think that's exactly the nail on the head i mean manufacturers respond to what their consumers want you know how a a minor aside here but i think it's connected um when you go onto a car lot now what's the number one thing on the sticker at least in the united states and i'm assuming in canada Mm -hmm miles per gallon for an internal combustion engine. Yes. People look at that metric and electric vehicles obviously don't have a mile per gallon thing t- to worry about. Um, but I think increasingly you're going to see consumers say, okay, what was the total ESG footprint of this vehicle? And that can be connected to, did the lithium come from Chile or did it come from Quebec? You know, did it come from Nevada or did it come from Australia? Um, and I think these are the kinds of things that are going to increasingly be asked for by consumers, because they're going to want to know that, you know, while, hey, I might be doing a good thing for the environment by buying an electric car. And not emitting when i drive i want to know that the metals weren't coming from some far-flung place and i was emitting as part of the shipping process or i wasn't contributing to child labor in the drc or elsewhere i think increasingly these are going to be asked for by consumers and i chronicle in the book the efforts by tiffany and company actually the jewelry company to help form this new mining certification program that so far has got support from ford and bmw and microsoft and others it is growing but it's a way for mines to be basically judged on certain key metrics. And then the results of the test, if you will, are made public for everyone. There's no hiding. Yeah. And so this way everybody in the entire supply chain can know how that mine operates, how it pays its people, how, it, how much water it uses, how much water it recycles, all of these things that go into the ESG footprint. Because I think increasingly consumers are going to demand this information so that they can make the best decision they know how with their purchasing power.
0: Uh, let me come to something else in the book, another example, rather, because it's, sure. it's different from these. You know, the, uh, is it pronounced Rayolate Ridge Project? You know, the lithium project, Ridge, I'm yep. talking, uh, yep. you know, a huge one. I mean, what is it? One of two really monster ones in the States. Lithium, yep. of course, as you alluded to, batteries, and not just for cars, not just for EVs, but other, you know, uses. Uh, I, I just found the
2: opposition to that fascinating. I'll let you describe it. Sure, this is a site about two hundred miles north of Las Vegas, and it's a massive deposit of lithium that's also intermingled with boron, which is used to make soaps. So the company that wants to develop it it basically sees two potential revenue streams here. It can sell the soap, which is which is great. I mean anytime you can sell two products is awesome, and then it can sell the lithium what at the start of the company, they hope to sell it in the United States. That's their main goal to really help the United States resilience and the problem though is that this site in Nevada is also the home to this rare flower found nowhere else on the planet. This is the only spot in the entire world that this flower has been found. And the tension right from the beginning is this question of whether or not the mine can be developed with this flower. And they have the company pitted against this conservation group that is saying, no, like what matters is biodiversity. If we let this flower go extinct in the name of fighting climate change, are we, going to let something else go next? You know, is it going to be an animal or something else? So we just sort of let go. And the tension on the other side is you've got this company led by this very earnest man who used to be in the oil and gas industry and sees his fight to build this lithium mine as sort of key to leaving the planet cleaner for his grandchildren and children than the one that he found. And the, of course, the, the, the deep see the tension here is not only between the lithium and the flower, but sort of broader questions around climate change, um, the fight against climate change and the fight over biodiversity. If we did nothing, if we just let climate change go unabated and didn't produce this lithium, would the flower go extinct anyhow because of climate change? Um, what do we matter more? You know, I mean it's there are millions of types of flowers on the planet. You know, is this one worth it? Is it a true slippery slope if we let this one go extinct and others go extinct as well? Can the mine and the flower coexist. Um, and these are the things that the book explores through real human detail and human storytelling. Because I was, I was very keen here not to write a book about geology or investing. I wanted to write a book about people because these are issues that affect all of us. So I wrote a book for everyone.
0: Yeah. And, and that's where I think so much of the success, I mean, the way you've you framed it, but you've just done a great job. And I loved it in the book. When you have that you know, that's the choice. That's to me. That was the essence of the book. Like, make a choice. There mm-hmm. are, you know, fallouts everywhere. What have you found? Uh, in, like, I think we've been on this sort of one track. We're going to push it forward. Now we're getting into reality. Now these choices are coming front and center. Do you? Would you bet that these kinds of things brought forward, and the reality, not them being bring forward, but the reality will delay the energy transition? I mean, some of the. Uh, some of the goals are very, very ambitious. You know, we're all going to be in EVs by 2030 or 2035, you know, and we're no near the amount of cobalt we'd need to do that. Right. Uh, I read a study out of the UK describing, well, if the UK was going to, was proposing to do that, they'd need all the cobalt in the world right now. You know, that kind of thing. We know from you know, people in the mining industry, the incredible need for copper that's going to come with the renewable energy, the EV revolution, those kinds of things, uh, So do you think one of the hesitations here is that just even addressing these kind of concerns on that local level, which you've done very well in the book, to me, that just means, you know, that timeline's not realistic.
2: Well, Mike, I I would agree with you there. The more I added up the plans by Washington and Ottawa and Brussels and other governments around the world to go fully or all, or partially, excuse me, fully or partially electric, you just do some math on the back of an envelope and you realize, okay, well, if, if this is the goal, how are we going to actually get there? And the book is an offshoot of my work at Reuters. And I would cover specific yeah. projects for Reuters, but I would keep getting a no on each one. You know, Each project was facing a lot of opposition. And it really wasn't my perspective or even goal in the book to say whether or not these mines should be built or should not be built. But just doing the simple math, I would say, okay, if we want to go fully electric, as as you were saying by 2030, 2035, you're gonna need a lot more lithium. Like here in the United States, President Biden has set this really ambitious goal of having all of the vehicles that the US federal government owns, which are a lot of cars, uh, uh, go fully electric by 2035. And you're gonna need to have, as you say, a lot more lithium, copper, cobalt, and nickel, and many other critical minerals to reach that goal. And so if we are not going to produce them here in the United States, well, where are we going to get them from? And are we going to get them from China? Like that seems like a huge, probably not what the, the, the policymakers in Washington have been intending. Um, and so it does seem to delay and on paper, it would delay these electrification goals. And and let's remember, it's, it's, it's not just about how do you build the electric vehicle, it's then how do you Build the charging network, which requires a lot of copper and other critical minerals, and then it's also much, much more than just transportation. You know, I have a a chapter in the book that seems kind of whimsy, but it's about leaf blowers. And for me, it was a way to bring to the reader this idea that this issue is not just about electric cars. Yes. So a few years ago, I I got a house and I decided to sort of live that suburban dream of of, you know mowing my own lawn, and I got an electric lawn mower and an electric weed whacker, and yes, and an electric leaf blower, but I had just started writing this book, Mike, and it took me down a rabbit hole of, okay, if getting an electric leaf blower is better than having one powered by a two-stroke engine, where did all those metals in that leaf blower come from? And I couldn't figure out where any of them came from, including the cobalt. I had no clue if a young child took it out of the ground in the DRC. And, and I have a lot of resources at my disposal. I still couldn't figure it out. and that, So that's just a leaf blower. now. i extrapolate that across the millions of other electronic devices that we all use every day cell phones, laptops, etc. All of these are powered by critical minerals. So this is an issue that goes beyond just uh, transportation. And I think that for me, that really crystallizes uh, the tension here around this idea of of choice or the choices we're not making.
0: You know, when I read that part of the book, I I, got to say, I had a big smile on my face. I I sort of muttered the word finally, because (laughs) it's not just as you say, it's so many aspects of our lives, and all I want is a realistic conversation, you know, a practical, realistic conversation, and that's why I think the book goes so far. But I'd also, um, you know, remind people, uh, you know, it's uh, it's Ernest Scheider, and I'll just be S C H E Y D E R. Follow him on Twitter, you know, senior correspondent for Reuters. But again, here's the name of the book: The World Below: Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle. To power our lives. And I say, I read a ton of stuff. And I I really did say, finally, somebody's addressed these many, many issues that are so pertinent to what's going on. And key, I mean, you know, if we're not getting, you know, the geopolitical tensions, we're not going to be relying on China, it can be weaponized, that kind of stuff has all come to the forefront. Well, then the debate begins in other areas. And Ernest, you've done a fantastic job with that. And I highly recommend the book.
2: Awesome. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for your time.
0: Thank you. You know, once again, this week, all eyes were on the U.S. Uh, inflation numbers this time. It could be Canadian inflation numbers. We look around the world within that. I want to bring Michael Levy in to discuss it, though. You know, Mike, it's fascinating. We got those CPI numbers there. And, well, uh, you know, first of all, I think they were a disappointment for those who wanted to see even lower inflation.
3: Well, they were, Mike. But fact is, as they came in at 3.1% in January and that's versus a December gain of 3.4%. So you just take a look simply at that. That's a pretty darn good number and it looks like inflation's coming down. Yeah, but could you believe the market reaction?
0: I mean, to me it's just a testimony to how people are fixated and I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but they are fixated on, you know, central bank policy what the economy is doing, what the inflation number, and again, ultimately, it comes back down to interest rates.
3: Well, it does, Mike, but the the thing that to me is a bit of a head-scratcher, but it shows uh, just how vulnerable the markets are just to simple numbers, is that the expectations were predicted at 2.9%, so they came in at 3.1%. So what? They were 3.4% the month before. It's not like it went from uh, 2.9, 3.1, back up to 4.5 or some silly number. That was just a miss. But the markets are so sensitive, Mike, that when the numbers came out, the Dow fell 500 points. The other equity markets fell, fell in, in, in the same ratio. But then you had the interest rate, the bond markets also reacted. Yeah, I think what that's about is that, you know, since December
0: 1st, when Jerome Powell sort of signaled a a change in sentiment, you know, that we were going to get lower. You remember, Mike, at one point we had, uh, you know, the analysts forecasting a rate decline starting in March every month for the rest of the year. And I think, you know, so much of the market action was predicated on a very optimistic view that rates are going down. That is it's so vulnerable to the, even the slightest hint that maybe they're not going to go down as fast. I mean, I'm looking at the market sentiments now. I guess they're, still, they're right back to predicting maybe three rate declines this year at a quarter point each or four rate declines. You know, a far, a far cry from what they were. But as I say, that euphoria is what pushed those
3: markets higher. And, and Mike, what, what we're looking at is maybe a June Rate decrease instead of a May. That's not a big deal, but what is a big deal is how sensitive investors are, even to the smallest little move that might be contra to what they were expecting. And you don't see that in good markets. You don't see there's ups and downs, but everybody is so sensitive to it. And you have markets reacting like they did. And this will carry on until some steadiness comes into the, into the market till, till people have an anticipation that things are going in a direction in which they can operate. Yeah, I think, I think that's the message here. I think people, and that was a, one of the big messages coming out of the World
0: Outlook Conference, is expect volatility, that it's not going to be smooth sailing. And we don't have a clear path at this point. Now, through December, uh, part of January, the market assumed there was a more clear path. Now it's a little cloudier as to when, as you said. So, yeah, I think that, that's a big message for investors. Don't be surprised at the level of choppiness, the level of volatility that we're
3: going to be experiencing. And this was just a quick example. And that's not, well, actually for investors, Mike, let's um, separate the two. For investors, we'll live through What happened? It's not going to affect much. It'll affect the market on a daily basis. But people who are traders, people who play the markets, uh, people who just don't have the confidence in the longer term, this is going to affect them. As it affects them, it's going to affect the markets almost on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting. Of course, as you know, I'll talk to Victor later on and I'll ask him about that. Is this a great environment when you get these ups and downs so quickly? It's certainly, as you say, investors have got one approach,
3: uh, traders got another. Well, we'll be there, Mike. Yeah, just one more thing, Mike. I just got to bring gold in because there you go. Um, We're talking about the equity markets and interest rates. The floor fell out of gold for a day or two. Exactly the same kind of thing. So it's just not equity markets or interest rates. It's the general broad markets that are affected even on a daily basis. Absolutely. Mike, we'll chat next week. Thanks, Mike. Have a good week.
0: Time now for the shocking stat of the week. As you heard earlier in the show, the transition to electric vehicles and renewable energy is going to require a massive increase in mining for things like lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper, uranium, graphite, rare earth elements. I mean, this is a huge opportunity for Canada. But the question is, will we take it? Well, I'll tell you, not if what's been going on the last dozen years or so is any indication. As Frank Duster and Franco Nevada's Pierre Lasson point out in a really good article in the Globe and Mail, in 2010, funds in Canada dedicated to mining investment, while well, it was sixteen point eight billion in terms of assets under management. You know, today it's fallen eighty-three percent to a shocking only two point eight billion assets under management. But I think you may have recognized this when you realize that Canada's lost almost all of its major mining giants i mean we lost inco alcan falconbridge miranda to multinationals and with that you lose the head office of course you lose r and d you lose development of a talent pool i mean simply put i mean it's undeniable in the competition for investment Canada, uh, capital canada's losing out to many other jurisdictions who provide a more attractive environment that's the bottom line as evidenced by Canada's biggest pension funds, by the way, lack of investment in Canadian mining. This is a huge story that goes unnoticed or ignored. And make no mistake, as Ozzy and I are going to discuss in a moment, we did it last week also with environment Indigenous legal expert, Robert Robin Younger, that the B.C. government's new land management proposal that would make First Nations co-manager of all Crown lands well, I'll tell you, it is going to be devastating to any efforts to reverse the declining capital investment, especially when it comes to mining, well, every other industry. Last week on Money Talks, we talked about a fundamental change to how Crown land in British Columbia, keep in mind, Crown land, 94% of the land mass in British Columbia, how decisions will be made about use on that Crown land. In a nutshell, it talks about the new Land Act, talks about giving First Nations co-management. In other words, they can also, they are part, not just part of the decision-making, they are currently, but co-manage this decision-making with the government of Canada. Here's the thing that's disconcerting. We had a great interview. If you haven't heard it, go back, listen to Robin uh, Younger, the lawyer. He's an indigenous and environmental lawyer. Did a great job explaining it to us. But here's the thing. Angus Reid just came out with a poll, thanks to Vaughn Palmer, the Vancouver Sun, for reporting it, saying that only 13% of people were really fully aware of this, knew what it was. 13% of such a fundamental change. When it was outlined to them though, when people said, okay, well, this is what it's about. Well, it was incredible, 94% agreed. It was a major change to how we're handling Crown land. I got to get Ozzy Jurik in there. Of course, he's been hearing all through, whether it's the uh, development community and real estate, but hearing from all others about this proposal Ozzy, what have you been hearing about this change to the land, uh, land use?
4: Well, the big surprise to me was that how few people know it. Now, after this, after this poll, it seems clear to me people are absolutely not aware of Look, what it means is vastly increased housing costs, as every new housing subdivision on the outskirts of any town that is now indigenous consultation ready, and every single felt tree needs to be approved. Food is getting more expensive, as the, much of the ALR is on native land, and vastly falling investments. Mike, we're already behind investments behind Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, my goodness sakes. And job losses as major projects such as mines, roads, side-sea dam equivalents, pipelines, transmission lines. Everything gets held up, delayed, and gets far more expensive down the road.
0: And uh, Yes, it introduces, in a nutshell, a level of uncertainty. And we've, we've talked about this for real estate before the regulatory burden but the uncertainty the time it takes before you can start a build you know all of those things are clear contributors to the housing crisis we've got now but it, it sort of occurs to me we're sort of extending that to the entire province of british columbia with ripple effects throughout canada everyone in canada should be paying attention to this but bottom line when you've had a second group of decisions makers who can say yay or nay That is not the regulatory environment that invites investment. There's too many other choices.
4: Well, in B.C., it's really poor government policy that drives a poor investment climate. This anti-investment stance, consider our business tax systems, which is the highest total tax rate on business in Canada. Now, you want to put a business into B.C., and you're, you're going to consider that. Well, the government says, well, you know, they don't want to come here. Well, they don't want to come here because it's too expensive to operate a business here and too uncertain. It's this level of uncertainty what the next devil of the details is going to be. The thing that worries me most is that it's done quietly and very, very quickly. Uh, and that means that they expect uh, opposition, but they want to do it anyways.
0: Yeah, they say they want to have this passed before the legislature stops sitting in British Columbia on May 16th. That is a very tight timeline for something so absolutely fundamental. Hey, by the way, Ozzy, on that score, before they invited public consultation, they had already started working on the legislation. That's a bit of a hint, too. Uh, But it it covers so many things. It's not just I, I happen to start off by saying it could be a mining project, forestry, could be fishing. No, it's if you want to put an electrical tower up there or if you want to do, uh, you know, it's just anything. It's a land use, you know, legislation.
4: The First Nations will become joint landlords of more than 90 percent of British Columbia and own veto power over any decision British Columbians want to make for our province. Hey, I'm all for natives, I'm all for immigrants, but please, let's take a good hard look. Let's have some time for debate on this. Make sure that all our British Columbians know what they're planning.
0: You know, I'd, I'd add to this is that, um, you know, the government right now in the current system is responsible for determining in the end, after consultation, what's in the best interest of British Columbia. Well, native bands aren't entrusted with the same mandate. They, they should be doing what's best for their particular, uh, you know, uh, band and community. That's not the same thing. That's my point. It's not the same thing. So uh, I just think, as you say, Ozzy, this is so fundamental that how we would be rushing this through, you know, before May 16th, you know, the full legislation, et cetera, without full, clearly without full consultation, should be just a huge alarm bell. And I'll leave that for now. You and I'll have plenty, unfortunately we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this. Let me just come quickly before we finish to the the latest numbers we've got, the real estate numbers. You know, December was a little better in terms of sales than November. This is across the country. January was better than, you know, December. What do you make of that? Should we start getting excited, pop, pop the corks on the champagne?
4: Well, interestingly enough, Vancouverites in particular, but Canadians across the country are out there looking at houses, they're going to the opens, they're interested in buying. And I, I say, and you pointed out, that the caveat is we're measuring ourselves against the anemic January 23 and January 22, and we're still running 30% below the sales of the 10-year average. So uh, why is that happening? Well, what the thing that worries me is that our buyers seem to be—they're uh, acting on the rates that haven't come down yet, <laughs> and in my, in my view, they will not come down in March or April. they come in June, and maybe not until August the next one, and the rest maybe after the election. And so we, we have inflation rising, ten-year bonds are rising, employment is rising, unemployment is falling, and while we have a lot of you know reasons to worry about, um, we certainly don't have certainty. So. If you're a seller, sell now. There's low product, lots of buyers out there. If you're a buyer, I don't think prices will run away from you. But lock in your mortgage because while the the, the mortgage, while the interest rates we talk about, the long term rates are under five percent, which is in a long, 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 long history one of the lowest you can go. If you, as you and I talk about the Whisper mortgage, you have good credit rating, four point eight percent is in the cards for you, and that's not bad. But lock it in because if the the rates go higher on the bond market, we also will see the mortgage take a reverse. Yeah, I keep
0: track of that five-year Government of Canada bond, which is the big influencer for your five-year mortgage rate, and I look at what it's done even since the beginning of January. I mean, it's up around six-tenths of a percent since January. So I I think the trigger is getting pulled as we speak for higher five-year rates.
4: Yeah, and that's what we have to be careful about, and that's why we should – Make sure you get real I mean, you get three to four months of, of, of pre-approval. You have to have all sorts of documents right now. You might as well get ready uh, just in case it goes higher. Mm-hmm. And, and don't go crazy, you know. I mean, this is not a time for multiple offers.
0: Well, you'll get more on ozbuzz.ca, and that's what I encourage people to do. He'll talk more about that Land Use Act, but many more things, of course, in the market. Just go to ozbuzz.ca. All you have to do is put in your email address so they know where to send it, but that's a weekly newsletter from Aussie. In the meantime, Oz, go out and have a terrific week.
4: Thanks, Mike. And I'm with Kautscher Marx, who says, Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. And then get reelected.
0: <laughs> <laughs> elected Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Adair joins me now. You can find him at VictorAdair.ca. Vic, so many things are occurring to me when I look at the strength of the market. You know, it's the old climbing a wall of worry because nothing seems to derail it for more than a day or two. You know, so we've got this power market going on right now. What's your impression of it?
5: Well, the the stock markets are are where the the, the rally is happening. Certainly the Dow and the the, the, S&P, what we call it, the bedrock uh, indicators in the market, are up 15 of the last 16 weeks. That is a record going back to 1972. More than 50 years, just to give you a flavor for how strong this rally off of the October lows of last year has been. A, A couple of things
0: occur to me in that. One is, it feels frothy in some areas, but there's been a rotation in others. So let me just start with the frothy stuff that I'm seeing out there.
5: Well, I mean, the, the latest new kid on the block, as I call it, a uh, super micro computers, uh, has rallied from three hundred dollars a share to over a thousand dollars a share. In the last 20 days. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, and of course, we've had a, an incredible run-up with N- 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 NVIDIA. NVIDIA. I always say that wrong. Sorry. Um, I, I want to say the stock symbol. Uh, the whole tech sector has been you know, the leader. But the last two weeks here, there's been a real rotation where the tech sector has lost the leadership to what we call the, the small cap. Uh, stocks. And by the way, when I speak of, you know, the, the large cap stocks, Apple made their high back in December. I mean, they've not been a market leader for more than two months. And I think one of the reasons that, that Apple's down 10 percent from those highs is that 20 percent of their sales apparently happen in Japan, in, in China. And of course, as we know, China is in. Well, they're not they're not spelling it out, but China's in a depression.
0: Uh, let me come. Also, it's you know, the, as I said earlier, you know, bull markets climb a wall of worry, and we've given it a wall of worry, things to worry about. When you look at these major layoffs that we've been seeing, you know, I think it was on Friday that uh, Nike again, another monster layoff. But that's one of very you know many that we feel like we're just firing through over the last few weeks. The market doesn't seem to mind. Back to what I was saying, it's a, it feels frothy. I always get nervous at that, Vic. You know, I've never, you know, I just know that as we go out, in this manner or some of the stocks go up as you just said uh, you know that obviously we better appreciate that the risk is increased you know and and I'm not so sure people are prepared for that Uh, that that's a guess obviously I haven't quantified it but you know there's things you can do if you're a little bit worried. Uh,
5: If I could just spit it out Mike it feels to me like people are buying lottery tickets at a casino uh, mm-hmm. That is the, on the retail side of things so with very short dated options. I mean, you can buy options now that expire the same day you buy them, you know, and people have been writing puts like there's no like it's free money. I I, I feel that, you know, there is uh, when it works and it keeps working and keeps working, you think, well, it's never going to stop working. So we've had a, an incredible run here, I would say, for for instance and this isn't an investment advice it's just an idea but if people have a portfolio of stocks and they don't want to really sell out of them but you know they have a feeling like a bit like I do puts are dirt cheap here you can, you can buy index puts that are you know, give you some downside insurance at the very least. Yeah, I'll
0: just elaborate with that. It's downside insurance. When you buy a put, you have the right to sell somebody, let's use a stock as an example, any stock at a a specified price. So if the stock takes a tank, hey, you've got that insurance policy. You can sell it at that prearranged price. So you're saying, Vic, that you're looking at those, that kind of insurance for a downside risk is cheap right now.
5: Yeah, and you know you could just buy. There's probably some reverse uh, ETFs you can buy as well. It might be mm-hmm. even easier for some people. Maybe you can't trade a, a an option or buy a put to, in a in an RSP, but you could buy those ETFs that qualify. In, in terms of the risks, I think of, of of a downturn. We've just had a tremendous rally here, as I said, the, the strongest in 50 years since, since uh, October interest rates there's been a real sea change there you know last december the market was looking for six cuts from the fed now they're pricing in barely three uh and if the prices of the indices do start to fall that will beget more selling because we've got a lot of i mean trillion dollar size mechanical buying in the market trend following and that sort of thing so if the market starts to slip a bit these guys have to reduce their sizes uh, we've got a seasonally weak period of the year from mid-February to April for for the stock indices, and also the same seasonal thing. Uh, this is when we get a volatility spike seasonally. You know, uh, yep. going, going back a number of years between now and middle of March. So it, it's been an amazing run. I'm not saying you know <laughs> it's gonna fall. It, it could double from here. Who knows? But for a, let's call it a veteran traders that I talk to, everybody's going. This is looking a little scary.
0: (laughs) And we've been there several times, actually, in the last few years in different, you know, in different uh, industries, et cetera. I, I guess the message, though, is, you know what? People should, again, and I know it's a straightforward one, review the risk you're taking. The risk has changed within your portfolio because of the movements. You know, don't fall asleep on this stuff. You know, stand back, assess your portfolio with your financial advisor. And whether you need to take action or not, I just don't want you to be surprised because the higher we go here, there is more risk in the whole, whole deal. And some of the fundamentals aren't supporting the stock rises anymore. So uh, good advice. Have a look at puts, have a look at stuff like that and have a look at victoradare.ca. Get all of his latest charts. Uh, if it doesn't give you a sort of, sort of a fear of heights, uh, go ahead and do that. Vic, thanks very much for taking the time.
5: Hey, thanks, Mike.
0: Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Of course, our cost of living has been the huge top-of-mind subject for Canadians throughout the country. I mean, it is just tough out there. You know, we talk about affordable housing. Well, that brings me to this week's Goofy. Toronto City Hall, under NDP stalwart Olivia Tao, has just voted to raise property taxes in that city by 9.5%. That's three times StatsCan official rate of inflation even more astoundingly, the mayor had repeatedly promised a modest tax increase. Well, 9.5 doesn't fit that bill. But here's my point. They're not alone. The amount of tax payable per dollar of the assessed value of a property is called mill rate. You got to understand that. And it's going up through Canada. Although you don't need the percentage you pay on the assessed value to go up when the assessed values are going up, but both are happening at this time. So for example, The mill rate in St. John's is going up nearly 10% this year, while assessed values are also going up 3.4%. So the percentage you pay on the property rises, obviously. Calgary passed a 7.9% hike. Edmonton approved a 6.6% property hike. Montreal, 4.9%. City of Vancouver passed a 7.5% property tax hike for 2023 and warns that, hey, you're going to get bigger increases as we go in the neighborhood of over 8%. And the king of all property tax hikes, a Soyuz British Columbia, where it's being bit widely debated, as you can imagine, because they're proposing a 39% hike. But the point is, all of this is significantly higher than stats can official inflation rate. But what it does is it's work its way into our cost of living, because they get passed along to renters as well as owners, right? It's more expensive to have a building. And if you're not allowed to pass them through, then what that does is discourage capital investment in new accommodation because we obviously need that with the population growth. No, as I say, notice we get an inflation rate, but people sit there and wonder, hey, my cost of living is going up far greater, especially if we start talking about uh, property taxes. This is just an all-out assault on affordable housing and rents. And by government, it seems to be relentless. And it reminds me of the old odd adage, we get the government we vote for. We get the government we deserve. That's all the time I have this week. And again, I want to have a big reminder of the polar plunge. I want you to get in that water with uh, Ozzie and I, former Premier Gordon Campbell, with Rob Levy from Border Gold, with Dustin, who is our technical producer here on Money Talks. You know, get a whole bunch of people involved to donate. Simply done, by the way, for donations is Money Talks Plunge. MoneyTalksPlunge.com. Hope you do it. All the people that we support in Special Olympics who've got intellectual disabilities of a variety of types, it could be Down syndrome, Fragile X, well, they and their families deserve our support. So it'll make you feel good. Go ahead and do it. And I hope you have a terrific week.